1: You know, we've been reading Luke's version of the nativity in this season, and we've talked about how there are two impossible births in Luke's story, and the stories of those two pregnancies and births are intertwined quite artfully by our gospel writer, but we have sort of unartfully separated those stories out, and we got John born and grown in the last couple weeks and now we're kind of rewinding through the chapters of the gospel to the concurrent pregnancy of John's mother's cousin Mary and so we're back in Luke chapter 1 verses 39 through 45 and then we'll move ahead to chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver the child. So I have preached A variation of this sermon pretty much every advent of Galileo Church's life together. And whenever it is a Luke year and we read the Magnificat, that song that Alicia read, the Song of Mary, we read that and then we sing Green Day and I wear this t-shirt and I preach this sermon. It goes like this. I don't care... If Mary, mother of our Lord Jesus, was a virgin. I know we have a whole doctrine about that, that the baby she bore was especially special because he wasn't conceived by conventional means, that God's own self is the baby daddy and not some ordinary schlub who couldn't keep his hands off a teenage girl. And I know that for a big part of the Christian world, it is important not only that Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus, but also that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life. We call that the doctrine of perpetual virginity. And furthermore, that her mother must also have been a virgin so that Mary herself was conceived in purity so as not to have any taint of the nasty associated with her birth to pass on by proxy during the birth of her son. We call that the doctrine of immaculate conception. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has been obsessed with Mary's sex life, or lack thereof, both before and after she married Joseph. For more generations than we can count, we have been afraid of women's sexuality And all the more so when it comes to religion and the entanglement of God's plans and women's bodies, as represented tonight by Mary's body. Without boring you with details, let me just say that there are translation ambiguities around Mary's virginity. That's probably why it's barely mentioned in the Gospels, only once in Matthew, once in Luke, and it's never touched again in the New Testament as a necessary component of God's plan to save the world. And those translation ambiguities make it far, far more likely to my mind that Mary's pregnancy was of the ordinary kind, not the perfect kind, like when two people who love each other very much, finish college, <laughs> and then plan a tasteful but expensive wedding two years out and wait until their careers are established before they procreate according to a careful plan that maximizes their chances for raising a successful, productive member of society? No, 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 I mean, I mean the more ordinary kind. You know, where where things happen all out of sequence? In a chaotic jumble of sweat and sex and questionable consent, and nobody's really sure in the end how to feel about it all, but only one person is ultimately going to bear the consequences, and that's her. And she can't talk to her parents And she's ashamed to stay in her own hometown, so she sneaks away in the pre-dawn hours, hitching a ride with a stranger, hoping to find a sympathetic ear with an elderly stranger, an elderly relative who will pour her some tea and wrap her in a blanket, sit her down on the sofa, while they figure out together what to do now. I mean, that's the way it happens for many, many human beings, right? Now, I'm not denying that something beyond the normal human plot is at work in our story of Mary, mother of God, because this is a Bible story, and the Bible is a story about God and what happens to people when God comes into their lives. So whatever ordinary situation Mary has found herself in, we are compelled to remember the invisible actor, the one whose presence is felt but not seen. The one whose presence can change everything just by being present. If Mary's situation is ordinary, God's presence with Mary is extraordinary, and that is why Mary ends up singing. We'll come back to the singing in a second. Here she is, teenaged, unwed, and pregnant, Those are the facts, no matter how you think she got there. Teenage, unwed, and pregnant is not a good formula in any age, in any culture. And God, our God, the God of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, the God of David and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the God of you and me, the God of all the messy lives of all the messed up humans who have come before now and who are here now... This God takes a look at teenaged, unwed, pregnant Mary and says, yeah, I can work with that. See, this is God's specialty. According to the Bible, God sits around on the heavenly throne, thumbing through high school yearbooks looking for losers looking for the ones voted least likely to succeed. And when God finds one, God goes on a mission. God is like a dog with a bone. God comes down to wrestle with Jacob, a schemer and a liar whose brother wanted to kill him, literally, not metaphorically, who spends half his life on the run from people he cheated God ignites a bush to introduce God's self to Moses, a murderous adoptee with daddy issues who is on the lamb from the long arm of the Egyptian law. According to the Bible, God looks for people like that. God looks for cheaters for bigots, for cuckolds, for concubines, for sex workers, for liars, for lepers, for gluttons, for victims of brutality and racism and hate, and makes them God's own, adopting them into God's strange little tribe of misfits who are somehow God's chosen mechanism for saving the world a little bit at a time. And now, Luke says, now with Mary, well, God has done it again. A girl, or now perhaps we have to call her a woman, considering what's transpired, who barely knows how babies are made, on her way now to having one herself. And God declares through angels and visions and heavenly choirs, through echoes of ancient prophecies nobody bothered to pay any attention to until now, that this girl this girl in trouble is exactly what god has been looking for salvation for all humankind is about to appear dawn is about to break light is about to shine in every shadowy place and hope is about to illuminate the long night of this dingy broken wrecked planet we call home so that it glistens with new possibilities in the morning sun and it all starts here it all starts now with mary not a perfect representative of virginal purity but a quite imperfect reality of a girl who will spend the honeymoon of her shotgun wedding on a bed of hay in a stranger's barn in labor. And it feels important to me that we at least consider this possibility that Mary is something other than meek and mild, something other than perfectly intact, Because if she's that, if she's that good, if she's that innocent, an existential blank slate to whom nothing has ever happened, who's never fucked up or been fucked up, well, then I don't know her. And she doesn't know me. But if she comes to Elizabeth's house in a panic, in a desperate, snotty uncombed mess if she comes thinking that maybe her world is ending that everything she cares about will be gone the instant they find out well then she and I have plenty to talk about because in Mary is like me maybe also like you and if God can work with her well you see where this goes Because to me, this would be the far more impressive miracle on God's part. To first see the catastrophe that is a human life lived out in all the particularities of one meltdown, and then imagine a whole new world born out of that very catastrophe, it would be the far more impressive miracle, and it would require the far more stout faith, to believe it. Because here's the thing, and forgive me, this is a two-part thing. Part one of the thing. Even if I can toy with the possibility of Mary's own redemption, the miraculous conversion of her situation from a mess to a blessing, it is still... It is still a stretch for me to believe that God could or would ever do such a thing for me. I mean, I know for a fact that God has done such things for me. I have a whole catalog of messes that I have handed to God like a child offering an irreparably broken toy to their parent expecting them to fix it. And very often, oh very often, God has done it. God has taken my crap and fashioned it into something so good, something I didn't even know to ask for. It's not so much a matter of God erasing my mistakes, although there are some I wish could be obliterated. But much more often, those catastrophes get woven into this pattern that only God knows, but that everybody can see once it's done. Yet still, when I make my next misstep, when I find myself ankle-deep, neck-deep in the quicksand of my own idiocy or meanness or ignorance or self-absorption, I am hesitant to believe that this time God will be able to help. I just squeeze my eyes shut tight and hope that it will go away. And I confess that I am constantly surprised when it does not go away, but mercy comes and rescue happens, and love is awakened, and hope shines its light, and I feel solid ground under my feet again. I don't know why it's so hard to believe. Mary is but one of the throngs who sing of God's ability and willingness to make beautiful things out of dust. Still we doubt that God could or would do that for us, with us with the broken relationships and wasted semesters and exhausted mental health and financial calamity and half dead, three quarters dead faith and whatever else we've got that we have busted and cannot fix no matter how hard we try. God has done it before for Mary, for me, for us. Still, it's hard to believe. it gets bigger. Here's part two of that two-part thing, part two. Mary seems to believe that if God can do that for her, then that means that God is doing that for everyone. Not just me, not just you, not just one individual human life at a time. I mean, for the whole enchilada, the entire world, all its people, all its screw-ups, all its idiocy and meanness and ignorance and self-absorption, all of it recognized and recreated where everybody and everything relates just as God would have it. That's really what she thinks, that her own redemption is the redemption of the world. (laughs) That's what she's singing about. Her song has these two verses, right? The first verse is all about her and her uh, situation. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. My Savior, for God, has looked with favor on the lowliness of this servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. And so far, so good. Mary is so happy to realize that her catastrophe is going to turn out okay. God is present. God is doing great things for her. With God's help, everything's going to be fine. And then the second verse takes this wild swerve. It just, it just breaks free of the gravitational field of Mary's own little life to encircle the whole ever-loving globe. God has shown strength with God's arm. God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones. God has lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things. God has sent the rich away empty. And now this teenaged, unwed, pregnant girl woman is singing about stuff we might not have guessed she knew anything about. She's singing about Global economics and the growing wealth gap and the reality that the U.S. American empire throws away over the third of the food that we buy while other countries export their grain for profit while their own citizens starve. And she's singing about the military-industrial complex and its collusion with a political system that keeps the people's voices muted so that our cries for an end to state-sponsored violence cannot be heard. She's singing about police brutality and the racism inherent in our system of so-called justice and the school-to-prison pipeline, and she's singing about the distrust we still demonstrate of women's bodies and experiences, and gay bodies and experiences, and trans bodies and experiences, and gender-diverse bodies and experiences. She's singing about Pharaoh's long-lasting economy where most workers cannot afford to take a Sabbath, and those who can often don't because they self-importantly imagine the world will collapse if they stop working. She's singing about a world where climate change means drought and flooding and fires, weather extremes wiping out towns and villages, widespread famine in places that are already poor, places where people of color suffer most and baby girls are fed last, and we can't fix it because we want what we want when we want it. She's singing about places where people wake up every day, wondering not about the weather at all, but about the police presence, or the terrorist presence, or the rebels' presence, or the military presence, or the government presence, or the religious enforcement presence, the potential of violence and coercion, a reality that awakens anew every morning. Mary sings... That if her life can change, if her mess can be cleaned up, if her brokenness can be repaired, then that means the whole world can be fixed too. It means that God can do this. God can show strength with God's arm. God can scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God can bring down powerful people from lofty heights and raise up losers just like her. God can invert the system so that the rich are emptied of their self-satisfaction and recognize the hollow vacuum of their existence. And the hungry, those who hunger for food, those who hunger for justice, those who hunger for the world God dreams of, are filled to the with beauty and fairness and basic human kindness and, in the end, love. The love of a strong-armed God who promises a day of reckoning, a cosmic housecleaning when all the cobwebs of lazy thinking will be swept away and all the splinters of our rough treatment of one another will be smoothed out and all the accumulated clutter of our insults and lies and abusive talk will be burned as trash and we will finally, surely dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mary sings that... Mary believes that, and I, I like to think of her singing, humming her song in a quiet alto to soothe her baby, while she nurses him, while she bathes him and diapers him, while she swaddles him tightly to her chest and goes about her housework, she sings her song of revolution to her new baby boy. She sings her dangerous song of inversion, of powerful systems toppling to the ground while the lowly ones take to the streets to reclaim their dignity. It is not your typical lullaby. But can you imagine what kind of man grows out of a childhood with that song as his maternal soundtrack.
0: Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, Or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.